You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Invasive procedures for BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy, are not always the first choice for patients. Many patients will choose to live with the condition to avoid the risks of surgery. However, with the advent of new procedures, the decision for many patients to improve their conditions may now be much easier. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Peter Mensch, a urologist and founder of Delaware Urologic Associates, which specializes in treating urologic problems with the least invasive, state-of-the-art procedures. Welcome, Dr. Mensch. Hi, thank you. Today we will discuss new treatments for benign prosthetic hypertrophy. Dr. Mensch, what is benign prostatic hypertrophy? Benign prostatic hypertrophy, or BPH as it's known, is the enlargement of the prostate that goes on throughout a man's life. So it starts at puberty, and little by little, year by year, the prostate gets bigger and bigger. Early on in life, the prostate pretty much is non-existent, and so the relationship between the bladder and the prostate is very friendly. As the prostate enlarges, the terms of their friendship are changing dramatically. It's like renting an apartment and the landlord is raising the rent on you every month. So what happens is that the, that the prostate grows. It's benign growth, but it creates more work for the bladder. So the bladder simply wants to empty but it finds that it has to open a bigger and bigger prostate and exert more and more of its energy to do that before it ever gets to even empty. As a consequence, the bladder is pretty much tired when it gets a big prostate open and doesn't have enough energy to empty, and so the patient has to void more frequently, pee more frequently to get all the urine out. And what are the most common symptoms in addition to that that patients present with? Right, so it would usually be frequency, some hesitancy, they have to strain to go, stop, start, voiding, that kind of thing. Now, when you see a patient who has this kind of symptoms, how do you evaluate that patient? Just the usual history and physical. So I would ask him what meds he was on, of course, see if he's on any kind of diuretic or anything like that. Um, See if he is on any alpha blocker because those will be used for treatment. And if he's already on them, it kind of says that the guy's got more advanced symptomatology than if he wasn't on them and having those symptoms. And, of course, I do a physical exam, so I want to check the size of his prostate. The prostate should be about the size of a walnut or a ping-pong ball. It should be smooth. It should feel like relaxed muscle. And you want to make sure that it feels symmetrical so that the left side is almost a mirror image of the right, and you want to make sure that there's nothing hard in the consistency of the prostate. Now, when the primary care physician evaluates their patient with BPH, when should they refer to a urologist like yourself? I think that might be changing now because of this laser. So previously the situation was that the surgeries had consequences. And with the laser, many of the consequences are practically eliminated. So the decision to go surgical, since there's less risk and 
practically all benefit, could be made a lot earlier now. The other thing is that the medications that are available, which a primary care doctor could use, the alpha blockers, Hytrin, Flomax, Cardura, those type of medicines cannot provide the symptom relief that getting rid of the mass of the prostate, say, with a vaporization could. So it wouldn't be wrong for a primary care physician to start patients out on an alpha blocker and see how they do. And maybe if the person's symptomatology progresses on the alpha blocker, that might be an appropriate time to refer them. Now, before the primary care physician puts the patient on medications or refers to you, what tests should they be doing before? Well, the rectal exam and a PSA. And so the PSA is the prostate-specific antigen. It's a screening test to look for prostate cancer There can be a lot of false positives, but it's still a very good test. Before the newer medications came out, the traditional gold standard operation was the TERP, the transurethral resection of the prostate. Why has that gone to disfavor? TERP had a lot of side effects. So TERP uses electricity and the body's 70% water. It wasn't really until the laser with the use of light that you could actually blame the side effects of the electricity actually on electricity. When you see that they're not there with light, but they are there with with the use of electricity to trim the prostate, it's pretty obvious that it's not just that you, quote, messed with the prostate, but really how you messed with the prostate. So the modality is what seems to give you the side effects and not just the fact that you intervened on the prostate. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Peter Mensch, founder of Delaware Urologic Associates, which specializes in treating urologic problems with the least invasive state-of-the-art procedures. Dr. Mench, we were speaking about the traditional procedure of transurethral resection of the prostate, or TERP. Is that done at all? Yes. I would actually do it on rare occasions. So I, I tried to think of this myself and say, well, okay, when would I do a green light laser and when would I actually do a TERP? There's only one instance, I think, where it actually is in the patient's best interest to do a TERP rather than a laser. And that is, say the patient had prostate cancer and got palladium seeds planted in the prostate. A lot of times the patients that are found to have cancer also have coexisting enlargement to the prostate. And it's the great hope that if you put the seeds in, it will not only cure the cancer, but also shrink the prostate. And there's a great probability in that. But every once in a while, you'll find somebody who three months after their seeds still has an obstructive voiding pattern and is very much bothered by it. In that instance, you should actually trim the prostate. And the reason for that is the laser light will bounce off of the palladium seeds as you uncover them, and it will shoot back into the laser fiber and explode it. (laughs) So... It just doesn't work in that case. And actually, if you try to do a laser under those circumstances, anytime you see that you're uncovering one of those seeds, you have to stop, get a forceps, 
get that seed out, and then proceed to vaporize in that area. Whereas if you cut with electricity, you can cut pretty much freely. The other thing is those patients after brachytherapy for prostate cancer don't bleed. So one of the things about a terp on a normal prostate is that it's going to be very bloody. And so you actually don't have that restriction if they're post-brachytherapy. So it's like the one situation where, uh, you know what, I think I'll put the laser away and reach for the old standard. Now, in the patients that are treated with these newer medications, and patients see this on the television all the time being advertised, when do you decide that they're really not doing their job, Dr. Manchin, that they need something further? In my office, I have something called a Euroflow machine. And the Euroflow machine will measure per second how much volume the patient put out when he voided second after second after second. And so the normal person will be able to increase the speed at which they void tremendously, plateau, get everything out, and then have the speed drop tremendously, and they're done. And if a person is blocked, you'll find that their peak won't be so high and their grouping won't be so tight. It'll be spread out. So they'll do it over time rather than quickly, okay? And you can, you can get a tracing like that on a patient and say to them, look, this is, this is an normal, normal tracing. A lot of times patients will be in denial, and you'll feel the big prostate, and you'll say, boy, I'm, I'm sure this guy has to have voiding symptoms. And when he sees it, then probably his denial will drop. With these new medications, what percent of these patients actually have to go further than the medications, just a ballpark? It's pretty hard to say. I could, I could tell you there are so many variables involved, okay? So there's the growth rate of the prostate, and that is like people's shoe size. I mean, every guy will grow his prostate, but it's like a bell curve. So there might be an average growth rate, and then there's somebody who's at the bottom of the class and somebody who's at the head of the class. So you might see a 50-year-old guy with a huge prostate. And one of the things that that tells you is that his annual growth rate is very fast, okay? And if he's going to keep growing for another 40 years, he's going to have symptoms. The chance of him getting through the rest of his life and not doing something to his prostate, like vaporizing it, is very little. So to those people, you would just say to them, look, there is something that you can do that's very low risk, very high reward, and when you start to see symptoms, you tell me, and we'll consider doing this. So that's one of the variables is how fast will somebody grow their prostate. The other variable is you never know how strong somebody's bladder is. So I see guys that have huge prostates and have great flow rates and say they don't get up at night, and what that tells you is that guy's got a powerhouse a 12-cylinder bladder. It's, it's just a powerhouse, and it thinks nothing of that big prostate. That guy you don't even have to treat. Now, how does post-void residual evaluation fit in here? Well, when I was giving you the scenario of the prostate upping the ante and upping the work that the bladder had to do, when the bladder is spending all of its energy to open 
a big prostate before voiding, it has very little energy left to get the urine out. So that guy's post-void residual will be high. So a post-void residual greater than 100 is significant. It will increase. Uh, eventually, the person will go into retention, which is a post-void residual of 100%. They didn't void anything. Is this something that the primary care doctor would evaluate, or would this be in your field? I think this would be in my field. It's more to, more to document that what everybody suspects to be true is true, and kind of how to quantitate it to the patient so you could say, this is getting worse. I want to thank Dr. Peter Mensch, who has been our guest. We have been discussing treatment of benign prostatic hypertrophy. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.